Are you ready to travel through time with us? Then check out Traveling the Vortex, a Doctor Who podcast. For nearly seven years and more than 500 episodes, we've traveled from one end of the vortex to the other, making different stops with different doctors, reviewing everything from TV stories to audio plays, from books to comics, and more. Sean, Keith, and Glenn take you on a journey through 50-plus years of Doctor Who episodes and spinoff materials. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, so be sure to check us out. And now, we're a proud member of Direction Point, a Doctor Who podcast network. You're listening to the Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. You are invited on an adventure across all of time and space, in a completely random order. It's the Police Box in the Junkyard Podcast. Jump in the TARDIS with your hosts, Eric Goldbranson, Asad Cheshki, and Matthew Kressel. Explore Doctor Who TV stories, audio adventures, and books, both novels and non-fiction. The Police Box in the Junkyard Podcast. It's the entire Hooniverse. On Shuffle, the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast is a member of the Direction Point Network and is available about once a month wherever you find your podcasts. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. This is John Leeson, and I play Kate Nine on Doctor Who. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels, and that is compulsory. Hello, fellow time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the windy task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations, because time wins and all of that (laughs) goings on, and we've never used windy despite being in Chicago. I don't know why. My name is Tony Whit, and today we have an equally windy four-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me, though I'm windy all the time because of my diet. There's also our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes, but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello. I think I'm more Wendad than Wendy today. But that's okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Should we tell the listeners why that is? Eh, I got COVID like most people have. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So sorry. But at least you're sounding better than you were. So I'm glad that you're feeling even a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. There's also our semi-novice fan, one who's seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast. And this time around, it's the wise and witty Allison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Allison. Hello. Still a COVID novice, too. Haven't gotten it yet. Now that I've said that, I expect I'll be getting it shortly. Yeah, you and me both. You and me both. And finally, we welcome back our special guest, Jennifer Picker. Hello, Jennifer. Hello. At least I didn't have COVID either, but I still have a little cough. Yep, and I've got a, a stuffy nose and all that. So yeah, we're we're all in good company. <laughs> we're a Robitussin oh, yeah. label in here. <laughs> yes. If you like what you're hearing, though I can't imagine why, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash DWTargetBC. Depending on the amount you give per month, you'll receive, among other possible goodies, mugs and t-shirts with our logos on them, just like giving to PBS, but not a Target book. 
Since we know you have so many of those, you keep them in an endless void wedged between two universes, just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, The Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Summonall, Dave Davis, Simon Painter, and Joseph Middleton-Welling. Thank you all. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. We continue our discussion of Tom Baker's final season as we discuss John Lidecker's novelization of Warrior's Gate. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and Warriors Gate, adapted by John Lidecker from the script by Stephen Gallagher that aired from 1381 to 12481, published by Target Books in April 1982. As of this recording in November of 2022, this title is currently out of print. It is available as an unabridged audiobook, 124 pages. Now, Stephen Gallagher and John Lidecker are actually the same person. And the reason why he used a pseudonym for this novelization was to differentiate it from his other published work. By the time he'd written the script for Warrior's Gate, Gallagher had already established himself as a successful script writer for radio. And by the time he wrote this novelization, he'd already started publishing books under his own name, including, amusingly enough, the novelization for the little-regarded movie Saturn III, which starred Kirk Douglas, Farrah Fawcett Majors, and Harvey Keitel. So there's his claim to fame. It's kind of like Ian Martyr doing the novelization for Splash. Yeah. <laughs> That's an unusual grouping. <laughs> it really is, isn't it? It's like they couldn't find any U.S. writers willing to touch these. So they went to the U.K. and said, do you want to write a Hollywood script into a novelization? They were like, sure. No one you know will ever see the novelization. Your reputation is attacked. <laughs> I Pretty guess much. so. Maybe it was because of that novelization that he wrote this one under a pseudonym. It also helped that Gallagher was a Doctor Who fan. So when Christopher H. Bibby commissioned him, he felt he was certain he would get a good script. Gallagher would go on to write the story Terminus two years later, which, no, we'll get there. And he'd go on to write for series such as Rosemary and Time before creating the sci-fi series Eleventh Hour starring Patrick Stewart. He even contributed to the U.S. remake, which starred Rufus Sewell, whose name I've never been able to say, even though I love that actor. He has also since gone on to fame with many original novels. Unfortunately, Warrior's Gate was the very model of a major troubled production. For one thing, at this point, Gallagher was not as experienced doing television scripts, and the assigned director, Paul Joyce, did not feel it would translate to the small screen so well. Joyce received permission to overhaul the scripts, which included getting rid of the opening sequence with the Antonine Killer and emphasizing more of the Jean Cocteau-inspired sequences in Gallagher's script. Sadly, this also meant getting rid of some of the plot elements that made the final story make more sense, such as the idea that Birok had planned specifically for the Doctor and Romana to be part of his plan to release his fellow slaves. That doesn't quite come across in the televised story as well. Mm-hmm. I'm still hung up on it is the very model of a modern major model. Oh, you like that? I did. I worked on that, so I'm glad it was worth it. Apparently, the amount of work Joyce put into his scripts 
did not translate into an equal amount of work put into the planning of the shooting of the story. And given that Joyce wanted to make the story more like a feature film, that spelled trouble. Production assistant Graham Harper, who would later go on to direct stories for both the classic and the new series, was so worried about this that he told John Nathan Turner about it. And the very first studio day started with a fight between Joyce and the lighting supervisor when Joyce wanted to use the actual studio lights on the ceiling in a shot. God. Yeah. Things went downhill from there. In fact, interesting bit of trivia here. If you watch the Blu-ray collection and you watch the making of documentary for the story, they show the memo from a distance but they actually say we cannot read you parts of the memo because of legal action. So apparently to this day, they cannot go into how much legal action came up because of that. Wow. So yeah, it wasn't a small dispute. It got so bad that J&T's boss at the BBC got involved. Harper took over more and more of the directing duties. And at one point, John Nathan Turner even told Joyce he was fired, only to change his mind not long afterward when it was discovered that no one could understand Joyce's camera scripts. (laughs) Needless to say, even though he apologized to John Nathan Turner afterward, and John Nathan Turner ended up loving the finished product, he was not asked to direct again. Then there were Tom Baker and Lala Ward, neither of whom was happy about their dialogue in the story, nor about Romana having such a dispassionate departure scene. In fact, it's a lot more affecting on the page than it is on screen. Add to that the fact that Baker and Ward were fighting again, despite their impending marriage, and, well, suffice to say, it's a miracle that John Nathan Turner actually did end up loving the finished product and that the story is so well-regarded by fans, because it is pretty well-regarded. By the way, the audiobook is somewhat more expanded than this version because Gallagher went back to his original notes and added some material back in. It's a very good audiobook, though if you only have this version, you're still good. So, let's have a dramatic reading of the back cover, shall we? Jennifer, you specifically requested to be on this book, so I'm going to let you have the pleasure of reading the back cover. All right, thank you. The Doctor and his companions are trapped in an e-space universe, struggling to find the coordinates which will break the deadlock and take them back to normal space. When all else fails, the Doctor suggests programming the TARDIS on the toss of a coin. Before he realizes what is happening, that is just what Edric has done. When the TARDIS arrives at its destination, according to the console readouts, the craft is nowhere. And nowhere is exactly what it looks like. Yes even though that nowhere is actually a green screen set that's had white keyed into it. So, but yeah, it still looks like nowhere. (laughs) So Jennifer, let's start with the reason why you requested this one. What was your first impression of it? When did you first encounter the story, et cetera, et cetera. It's all very self-centered as a child, especially I particularly liked it, but the specific attraction to it has been a little bit more recent First of all, I was just in Los Angeles, California in February, hanging out with Mr. Lidecker, and I got him to autograph both Warriors Gate and Terminus, both my copies of both. Hmm. He was absolutely lovely to meet, very conversational. Actually, I don't know if it was just situational, but he signed without charging, and um, he was very engaging to talk to. 
the man has not aged. He's aged very gracefully. He was just neat to meet. The other one is, there's a, a convoluted background of this. Uh, there was a point in time that I walked kind of an earthy path as far as religion. And for a while, I had kind of a new age group that I was trying to form. And so I thought time ones sounded really cool hmm. from whenever I first was introduced to it. So in, during my master's degree, I created an online Yahoo group called Time Winds. And it, and it was for the new age group that we talked, we would just have discussions. And then related to that, or the Warriors Gate itself, actually, for a brief while, just post my graduate time, I was taking any job I could. And I was very briefly hired by California Psychics to do readings. And of course, with my passion for Lala Ward, my handle was Ramana. <laughs> And so I was also then going to parties and doing readings, and I decided that I needed a card. And so I went into a program that had pre-made templates, and I have no idea if it was legal or not or anything, but they had a card with the background of the Warrior's Gate, what you see exactly on this cover. And so I took that, I used that template to make my brief business card for going to parties and doing readings. Oh, Awesome. Okay. Did you ever have any Doctor Who fans recognize it? No. Uh, there was one time I had an English lady call in, and I thought she was trying to ask, but they're technically not allowed to ask about her name. But uh, I did have an English lady customer. But no, nobody identified it, no. Hmm. See, I was going to ask you if you'd ever met Miss Cleo, but... But that's the way my mind works. So there we are. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Dalton, what was your first impression of the story? I enjoyed the cover. This, the gate itself is very, it's kind of welcoming, but also foreboding in a way, I guess. So that was kind of evocative for me. And then after reading the back cover, it reminded me of, the loading area that is used in the matrix, which not knowing that on screen, it was just a white expanse. That is exactly what the matrix loading area is. So not without knowing it, I was already bringing up that kind of idea of this kind of liminal space that the warrior's gate inhabits. So it was kind of, mysterious to me and then i also knew that this is going to be the last of the three stories taking place in e-space so yeah kind of wondering how that was going to wrap up what was going to be the kind of key to get the doctor and his companions back to the other side so some questions raised but i feel like a lot of them were answered so now, interesting, when you said the loading area for the Matrix, I thought about the Doctor Who version of the Matrix, the, <laughs> the one on Gallifrey. And then that made me think, oh, but there is a loading area like that that's nothing but a white liminal space, but that's from the Jodie Whittaker story mm. where she finds out that she actually has been the Doctor for much longer than she's ever thought that she was, yeah. and she's stuck in the Matrix, and it's a liminal space just like that. And it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, it's like full circle. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, the, lo- not- the less said about that, the better. <laughs> not, that's not the story, yes. <laughs> 
<laughs> and just full disclosure, I showed Dalton the televised story on Friday, or rather, we weren't in the same room, obviously, because he's all the way in California, and we watched it together. So I'll be very interested to hear his thoughts on how it actually matches up to what he was reading in the book. Yeah. And Allison, what was your first impression? That's definitely a guy in lion makeup. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, building out the muzzle, it looked reminded me more of when my uh, grandmother used to take her teeth out. So I guess I wasn't excited based on the cover necessarily. I guess not. But then I actually loved the book. So uh, the, the cover receded in memory. Oh, okay. Okay. Good. Well, that's good to know. Despite the fact that it has no chapters whatsoever. Ugh. I didn't see that coming. Yeah. That was an interesting twist. I, yeah. I, I put that in my notes. I'm like, no chapters. Hmm. Yeah. I've never, all right, so I remember a friend talking about this and Googling it. I have not successfully located it, but there was a short story called The Fatal Run-On about a child. <laughs> you, you've read this? Yes. <laughs> Tony? Yes. yes. T- tell us about it. <laughs> well, you tell us about it because I, as soon as you said that, I was thinking that's my entire life is a fatal run-on. <laughs> Well, this is something someone was telling me about approximately 25 to 30 years ago, but supposedly a a child writes a composition that is one long run-on sentence, and the teacher is trying to read it aloud and can't take a breath and uh, expires. (laughs) That's my understanding of it. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's exactly (laughs) It's a high-concept story, it sounded like. I have so often read sample student papers allowed my classes and when we've hit a run-on, I've had that happen a couple times. Not the death part, but the uh, nearly passing out part. Which, of course, you play for dramatic effect and all that. Luckily, the book itself doesn't feel like a run-on because Gallagher is a fantastic prose stylist. But it's an interesting choice. And before we go any further about whether we liked or disliked the book, why do you think this is the only book that doesn't have chapters in it. Maybe to sort of foster that sense of being out of sync of with time in a way that for the theme of Doctor Who, we don't actually see all that often in the stories. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm thinking it is. It certainly gives a prose dimension to the idea of this endless space going on forever and ever, but also contracting. Mm-hmm. So it definitely has that feel to it. Oh. Alternatively, they were about to go over the page count for the print run and need to get rid of four and a half pages of material. That could be the case, in fact. Part of the reason why Stephen Gallagher did an expanded version of the audiobook, and I forgot to mention this, is that he did add new material to the book, and John Nathan Turner specifically said, no, we will not allow you to publish this book unless that new material is taken out. So the bit with the Antonine Killer at the beginning, that's the only part of the new material that still exists in that version of it. But the audiobook puts some of it back in. Unfortunately, I haven't had time to listen to the audiobook, so I have no idea what that new material is. Well, fortunately or unfortunately, I started reading the book, Things Happen With My Schedule, and finished with the audiobook. Oh, Okay, so you probably know more about it than we do, though. Well, I, I read on the description for the audiobook that there was new material, and I thought, oh, well, I shouldn't do 
this version, but then that introduction is in it. Yes. Uh, with the Antonine Killer. So I thought, okay, well, maybe it's just a bit here and there. So if I'd done my homework properly, I would have both read the entire book and listened to the entire audio story, and I could make a, oh. the words of Mark Twain making fun of Fenimore Cooper, a minute examination. <laughs> but I, um, <laughs> I did not do that. Well, at so. least this time you didn't end up reading a 500-page version of it yes. by accident. So that's the important thing. Like you did with Shada. 11 hours. Yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about what we like about this book. What do we like about this book? <laughs> Where do we start? I think that the atmosphere of it is wonderful. Yes, they're in this kind of liminal expanse that just goes on and on forever. But in a way it feels a bit claustrophobic once we start to understand that it is shrinking. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's kind of unusual to feel claustrophobic in a space that is filled with nothing. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But that feeling of the ship getting closer to the gate and the TARDIS getting closer to the gate, I think is really effective in making us feel like something bad can happen, mm -hmm. <laughs> even though we're totally surrounded by nothing. And I think that being surrounded by nothing means that Gallagher doesn't have to waste a lot of time describing stuff that we're seeing because there's nothing to see. Mm -hmm. So he focuses that descriptive power on the characters who are amazingly sketched Good Lord. The characterization given to some of these folks, like Rorvik started to move. He'd said little in the past few minutes, and Packard couldn't tell whether he was being strong and silent or if his mind had gone blank. Sorry, gone offline to sort and dump information. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you have some marvelous character sketches that keep all of these folks well-defined, and usually... And I know, Allison, you have said this many times. When you have so many character names thrown at you, you're thinking, oh my God, I can't remember who's who. You really can with these characters because they all have distinct personalities, even though they're all equally incompetent <laughs> at what they do. <laughs> they're not very good privateers or slavers or anything, to be honest. Oh. I think the book has did a much better job of talking about the time frames that they were shifting through. I, the the book did a marvelous job because yes. unless you've read it, you don't. It's harder to visualize what's going on. It, they did a great job using the black and white shots in the classic formal gardens. That was beautiful, but it wasn't until I read it that I actually captured entirely what was going on. Yeah, because it's so abstract. And that's possibly part of the problem that the director had with it when he said, this isn't going to translate to a visual medium very well because it's great on the page. But some of these concepts are incredibly high concept, even for 80s Doctor Who. And it is tricky to make those actually work visually. Yeah, I think it's something that the concept is so advanced that it would even be kind of difficult to achieve now. Oh, yeah. Just the, the idea of, of the way that the Therals move through time and space. How does that look on the screen, sort of flickering in and out of phase? 
it's flickering in and out of phase. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it works for the time. It's definitely a special effect of the time period. Mm-hmm. But it essentially is exactly what you think it is. It's a bit like watching a Magic Lantern show, but not having some of the interstitial frames. So frames are dropped. And that makes sense. Uh, If you're working in another time stream entirely, then it's obviously you're not going to be there for every single moment. So that does make sense. Mm -hmm. It's probably the only way they could have represented it, in fact. And even when uh, Barok goes into the TARDIS, it, I don't even remember it really like dropping frames or anything. It's just like he seems a little faint. Mm-hmm. And it's basically like he's acting like he doesn't see them. Right. And so I don't know if, you know, if they key in something to reduce his opacity later or what. But even that is just the acting is what drives the information as opposed to a visual cue. Right. And admittedly, some of those visual cues on screen, and I think, Dalton, you pointed out in the scene where, and I'm going to forget his name, the Tharl who is hideously burnt, but then later is healed and he gets Romana out of the ship. Laszlo. Laszlo. How could I forget a name like Laszlo? (laughs) Laszlo. Everyone in this story has linguistically basically the same name in terms of number of (laughs) of syllables and then where the consonants and vowels are. Oh, come to think (laughs) of it, I guess they do. Well, that makes sense then. But you pointed out when Laszlo brings Romana out of the ship that it just looks like they can walk through walls, but the book says no, it's not just walking through walls and the visual representation is just not translating that. Mm-mm. in the way that the book can. Yeah. Well, and I thought the book did give an interesting progressive revelation of what was going on, because at first it seemed to be more of an aura, a sort of a, you know psychic pulsation or something. Mm-hmm. When we have the initial descriptions of how Barak is shimmering. I would not have guessed initially that he was sinking in and out of different timelines. Mm-hmm. And what you said about this gradual revelation of things, it's interesting because the plot, the entire plot for the book, the entire plot for the story, rather, it gets unrolled slowly in the TV version because we don't find out that Birok's people were the original slavers until about the end of episode three. Whereas here, you kind of know it earlier and it doesn't seem to really destroy the story sense all that much. Mm-hmm. Well, referring back to Allison's comment about the shimmering, I'm watching some of the special features on the episode. In the very beginning, when they are, they're panning through the slaves that are in sleep, they had intentionally made the, the slaves that were sleeping glow and shimmer to kind of make the trials look always full of some type of cosmic energy or exuding this energy, even when they were in their comatose form. Then they carried that through also throughout the rest of the show when they were running through the time winds and moving through the time frames. Mm -hmm. Oh, and by the way, despite what the book says, there are obviously not hundreds or maybe thousands of Birox people on that ship on screen. No, (laughs) I think I counted about six extras in that scene, which is probably even more than the budget could have gone to. And the book is also, in my opinion, was very serious. We lost a lot of the humor, especially the two handymen 
were almost comical where that is almost in my opinion was almost completely lost in the book oh i got mm -hmm. that definitely yeah that they were bumbling about and you know found a stateroom to play cards in and yeah mm -hmm. but it, it is definitely not played up to the same extent that it is on screen yeah ha having read the book before watching the episodes yeah it's there in the book but it is they are dullards on screen mm -hmm. like <laughs> Dalton, you're supposed to be my partner in ignorance, and now you've betrayed me. <laughs> I'll remember this. <laughs> now you're one of the older kids. Uh-huh. <laughs> you've already seen it. Right. T I'm taking my, my AP English after school. Yeah. <laughs> well, in that case, you're not supposed to watch it instead of read it. But in this case, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. you listen to the audiobook. You still saw it. Uh <laughs> Listen to a version. I was actually thinking no one here is pure. No one experienced just the novelization and nothing else. Well, of course we're not pure, you silly bitch. We're here. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that got kind of adult. You've listened to our podcast before. You know how adult it gets. Here I thought that I was uh, just a violent, uh, belligerent goose. Nah, not mm. at all. I would, in fact, say that you are more of a boob. This is the first Doctor Who book I've ever seen the word boobs in. <laughs> I think I might have missed that. It was in the start. I'm not quite sure why, but it was there. I think they were referring to two of the crewmen as boobs, but yeah, they weren't referring to mammary glands, obviously. But yeah, still, <laughs> it was fun to see. Uh. <laughs> but yes, you're right. Jennifer, that a lot of the humor appears to be missing, which is interesting. I have a feeling that it comes down to Tom Baker, because even though John Nathan Turner was doing his damnedest to make sure that Tom Baker didn't clown up the scripts when he was trying to make this super serious show, which is just kind of a fool's errand when it comes to Doctor Who. Tom Baker was bound and determined to get something foolish in there. And that's exactly what happened. Paul Joyce said that both Tom Baker and Lala Ward were so unhappy with their lines in this that he imagined that not even Stoppard or Shepard could have changed enough lines to suit both Baker and Ward. So what were they unhappy with about the dialogue? Is general tone or particular lines? I think it was just about everything. They didn't like the way their characters were characterized, even though on the page they're fine. Lala Ward herself really hated her ending scene because... John Nathan Turner essentially said, well, we don't want it to be this big goodbye because we're not doing a soap opera. And she was like, well, fuck you. I've been doing this show for two years now. I'd very much like to have an affecting ending scene. Thank you very much. But it's not played that way on screen. I like that she left or is actually is staying to have her own adventures kind of riding off into the sunset rather than getting married or going to school. Yes. Actually, I don't think we've had a companion leave to go to school. We had one I thought should have left to have gone to school. Instead, she left to get adopted. <laughs> yes, she, yeah. she's going off to have further adventures on her own with her own sidekick, with her own non-human sidekick, as opposed to retiring. Right. Uh, no, just to add on to that, I listened to an interview with Lola Ward. And she did say, I really have no idea why I got my knickers in such a twist about all that. And she said that she and John Nathan Turner had gotten uh, quite cross with each other. 
And she said, looking at it later, she said she was much more satisfied with it later that she wasn't quite sure why she got so upset about it. Oh, I can probably imagine what it was. She was having to deal with Tom Baker being in a bad mood. (laughs) That's what I was going to say. If it's it's easier for them to uh, pick a mutual enemy. Yeah, I'm almost certain that was it. (laughs) And... The scene on screen is actually quite nice, and the fact that Tom Baker's last line is about her, and it's all right, she'll be superb, and it's delivered quite nicely, gives us something, whereas the book ends differently. And it's not a bad ending either. I was going to say, I'm not sure I remember that line. It's because the doctor doesn't say it in the book. No, it's not in the book. He thinks so. And it's almost as an aside to himself. In fact, there are a couple of moments like that in the book that are given a lot more weight that are passed over, such as uh, what's his name throwing K9 out of the ship into the void. At one point, there's a line this is something like Romana knew she had to attend to her duty or do what she needed to. And I thought she was going to <laughs> euthanize Aldrich <laughs> for a split second or <laughs> kick him out or something like that. <laughs> well, it was something else. But... Euthanize <laughs> Humanely. That's probably Lala Ward's duty, but not Romana's duty, yes. It's interesting that that does kind of happen there are a couple of bits like that and i'm trying to remember what the other one was there's this moment that either is more emphasized in the book or it's more emphasized in the tv version but it's a pretty key moment now i can't remember what on earth it is i'm gonna look through my notes and just let you all talk about it amongst yourselves it was pointed out in the notes about romana at one point considering canine as the doctor's machine Mm -hmm. Yes. And I was like, is this kind of like when the when the, the puppy is chewing up the shoes and you talk to your significant other and say, oh, get your dog. He's chewing up the shoes <laughs> or um, the shifting of ownership because canine was so damaged at that point. Well, it's definitely a different characterization of them. Yes. But it's not an out of character characterization, if that makes sense. Yeah. In fact, the only thing that seemed out of character in the book is the Gallagher treats Adric so well. Adric is not an annoyance in this book at all. He's kind of an annoyance. Well, he always is, but here it's more in the line of, this is his new family unit, and just as he's got a new family, they're breaking up, and it actually does upset him a bit. And that doesn't come across on screen at all. It's more Lala Ward saying, what if we were to part ways? In other words, what if I was to leave your snotty nose behind and go off on my own? <laughs> he seems to kind of take a back seat to what's going on with the Dr. Romana. Mm-hmm. He does have some things like getting on the, the MZ. The MZ. Called it in, the, in the episode. <laughs> you know, there's moments like that where he has something to do. But other than that, he goes out of the ship with K-9 and hides under the tarp. Yes. And meets up with Romana. And like, that that's about it. He has like two moments that I can really think of that he has something going on with him. Otherwise, he's just kind of laying low. He is the one that introduced the entire theme throughout the episode of random chance and randomization and the flipping of the coin. Mm-hmm. But yeah. he's following the doctor's lead there because the doctor is specifically trying to deflect. <laughs> yeah. And uh, in fact, let me find that passage because I did put it in the notes because I adore that passage. Ramana had seen the mood before. 
It came about when the doctor's own argumentative reserves were running low, so he'd turn the tables and take over his opponent's ideas, leaving nothing for anyone else to go on. Watching it being done to someone else could be fun. Having it done to you, and not for the first time, was only tiresome. And... (laughs) It's this whole thing of, oh, well, we could just, you know, toss a coin. In fact, that would be great. And that leads to a line that's not in the book, thank God, the Astral Young line, which I can't stand. Astral Young. But it leads Adric to flip the coin. And Canine quite rightly says, well, I didn't stop him because that's exactly what you were talking about, Master. Yeah. And it starts the whole thing along, even though it doesn't, because it's all part of Birok's master plan, which I think is lovely. I wonder if that's some of the new material, because there are several scenes of him flipping the coin and following it in the in the audio version. Really? Okay. At thinking about the significance. Does he, in the print version of the book, lose the coin and then start flipping the badge? No. no. Okay. There is a contemplation in the audio version of what's actually going on, whether or not the coin is empowering him to move about and navigate, whether or not it's concentrating his thoughts, whether or not it's actually affecting probability. Oh. So that's one of the additions. That makes sense. It, it's it's expanded yeah. upon quite a bit. Yeah. I would read it to you, but I can't. On screen, he just kind of is wandering about every once in a while, flipping a coin and finding his way that way. And that's all we get. Yeah, we have those scenes, but we have him thinking about it as well and trying to understand how it works. Okay. I think Adric really is handled better on the page in this one. And given that I don't have so much trouble with the character of Adric, it's Matthew Waterhouse who tends to give people the most trouble. But I don't really have that much trouble with Adric as a character, so it's always good to see a writer who's actually trying to take care of him a little bit. So one of the things I found a little more challenging to mentally wrangle was understanding the timeline. We have this talk of ages, you know, the temples, and they're untouched by the ages. I think we have the term ages later on when we're describing how long it's been since the Therals were enslaved. But then the Therals seem to know each other from before. I was I was a little confused about how long it might have been since this major inversion took place. And it seemed like, uh, I want to say Borax, and that is not his name. Birok. Oh, Birok. Birok, yes, I'm sorry. Borax. It, I want to say Borax and Leon, and that is also wrong. Birok, <laughs> Birok and, and Rorvik, yeah. The other one is? The other one is Laszlo. Yes. Birok and Laszlo are familiar with one another. Mm-hmm. Okay. And this is supposed to be a vessel traveling with hundreds or perhaps thousands of enslaved Therals. Yeah. Some of whom are very young and haven't developed their abilities yet. That was the only part that didn't, to me, seem to sort of settle into a a smoothly flowing background, trying to understand what that timeline was and what the previous relationship was. From the initial setup, I would have been surprised if any of the Therals were familiar with one another. Really? Why? Because they were being transported in stasis, mm. and I thought that they were basically not, in some way, not activated yet. Talked about some of them being very young or not trained. Right. But they would have been aware of each other before they were enslaved. I thought that the Therals were enslaved ages ago. Right. But they would still have to be awake at some point before they're being transported, right? So mm. it's that part did never quite set up for me. 
Okay. And I thought that the training specifically meant like navigating the ship because right. there, there is a difference between being able to see your futures and where what you physically can go and do versus navigating a whole ship with lots of other people on it to different times and spaces. So mm-hmm. when did the humans and the therals change places as who was the enslaver? Who was the enslaved? Sometimes it seemed like it was 20 years earlier. Sometimes it seemed like it was thousands of years earlier. Sometimes it seemed like maybe Boric had been ex- enslaved from birth. Other times it seemed like maybe he was there for the inversion. I- now, that is a good point. And it could just be, be me being slow. No, I don't think it is. In the televised version, Birok is in the past when the doctor goes back to the past and sees that dinner party where the female slave is slapped by one of the Tharls. So it could very well be that Birok is kind of this embodiment of time for the Tharls. I was amused that the uh, Tharls' center of power was an English country house and relieved it wasn't a quarry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure the production team were too, because they couldn't have afforded to go on location for this one. (laughs) to say they were going to suggest are you sure you don't want them to rule from a quarry we have a very nice quarry (laughs) (laughs) i finally saw on pluto uh the green death and oh god (laughs) but i wasn't able to immediately identify it because it was being filmed in a quarry (laughs) you said they were all filmed in all the stories were filmed in quarries well that's how you recognize doctor who stories from other british television (laughs) Unless, of course, they're science fiction series, in which case it's like, oh, it's either Blake 7 or it's Survivors. I don't actually know whether or not Red Dwarf ever had episodes set in quarries, but it wouldn't surprise me if they did, even though they had a much bigger budget. What did we not like about the book, if anything? That part about the timeline that I was just talking about was really the only part that bugged me. That it could be a bit confusing in terms of figuring out how the characters all thread together in that way. Well, and a part that I almost certainly missed as opposed to this being missing is how the humans were able to keep the Therals from foreseeing that they would be the enslaved and heading it off. Oh. I think I just missed that. I don't think it's in the story, to be honest. Because it would seem that they would be strategically impossible to defeat. Yeah, yeah. Do you think they would be part of the Dwarf Star alloy? Because it it could even pin down a dream or hold down a dream? It might be that, but that would only block them when they're on such a ship. True, yeah. I'm thinking more that it has something to do with not being able to foresee the Gundan robots coming through the mirrors. Because the humans can't come through the mirrors, and the robots can. That's kind of the point of them. So it could very well be that they're enslaved because they could not foresee anybody coming through the mirrors except for themselves, especially mechanical beings. We don't know what the Gundons are actually made up of. I keep wanting to say Gundam. Yeah. Too much anime. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I just pretty much visualize them as such. And well, sort of what you're talking about there, I went down a, something of a dangerous rabbit hole the first night I read this book. And it, it starts on page 22. And it's talking about the relationship of the salt crystals. If oh. you have one salt crystal, it's only going to sit there and do one salt crystal things. When you dump your salt crystals out, they're all going to interact with each other because of their spatial relationship with the next one. Then I compared it to humans, but humans have free will. 
mm-hmm. that free will is going to change each and everybody's response. So that might be part of the problem that you're talking about there. Hmm. But it, it was just me running down that rabbit hole. So then I thought about the ripple effect. You throw that stone into the water and you've got the ripple effect going out to the edges of the banks. Where does that energy stop? And then it's an infinitesimal the amount of waves you're you're going to have. And then I went even further and I thought about it's a type of um, flower arranging in Ikebana. And it's Nigeria, mm. Nigeria. Mm-hmm. And you randomly throw your flowers into the vase and entropy or, or, or time and gravity put those flowers the way or high, well, it's also in Zen Buddhism, that higher power puts those flowers where where higher power wants them. And I kind of compare that to Bor- Borak. Bor- oh, come on. Borak? <laughs> it's my fault. I've corrupted you. With, with, Borax and Leon. Yeah. With it being his master plan in him and it, all of it coming together in his plan. So the randomness actually is part of a larger plan. Right. Yes. And then I also thought about randomness and then all of the different points that be, could be considered and then making it then then this is all philosophical and then making it scientific and then adding statistics to all of it and making mm. that that there is an order in the perceived chaos. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. It also made me think of spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't watched a movie that's like five years old at this point. <laughs> but in fuck, which Avengers movie is it? Doesn't matter. When when Doctor Strange basically <laughs> uses the time stone to look through all of these iterations of the future to see what would happen mm. if you know whatever the Avengers did, and basically. It's like we have to lose to be able to win. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of this this idea that Burak, like Jennifer's saying, that Burak is somehow going through all the iterations of the future to see that they have to be enslaved to become free again. Mm-hmm. Okay. Or as he even says, do nothing. Yes. Yeah. It, as long as it's the right kind of nothing. Right. In fact, oh... I'm thinking more along the lines of the movie Arrival and the short story that it's based on, Story of Your Life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how, and this is spoiler alert, again, for a movie that's been out for a while, so pay attention, <laughs> that upon learning the alien's language, the main character has a sense of time that allows her to see every moment of her life up to her death. And it's all set in stone. Nothing that she can do is going to change it. She only knows that she's got to go through point A to get to point Z. Mm -hmm. And maybe Burok's people have always known that they would have to be enslaved in order to be freed again. And this is just going to be one of those moments. Because when the robots come through the mirrors, they don't seem all that surprised to see them. Mm -hmm. Come to think of it, it could very well be that that buffet, that huge meal that they're having with foods from all over the known universe, is a Last Supper. Yeah. And they are well aware that this is going to happen to them. And they're just waiting for that moment to happen. They know what is going to happen, and they're prepared for it. Well, they even have a name for it, don't they? Oh, that's right. In the book, it is called something, isn't it? Yeah. Sorry, Allison, oh, I cut you off. <laughs> I think someone was cut off. I thought you were looking up the word, Tony. Oh, no. God, no. 
I'm perfectly willing to live with my own ignorance at this point. But yeah, <laughs> I'm fairly certain that there was something. So the fact that they're giving so much importance to it possibly means that, yeah, they were always aware it was going to happen. Mm-hmm. So do we think that this experience will make them any better and see that being on the other end of being enslaved as a species is a... Uh... I think so, because they're... Well, in the televised version, there's an exchange between Birok and the Doctor, and I can't remember now if it's in the book, but Birok says, You've seen our past. You've seen our present. You were right. We abused our power. But judge whether we've not suffered enough. As you said, the weak enslaved themselves. That's an appeal to the Doctor, please help us at this moment. Well, notice I didn't quite know how to finish the sentence. Do they now see that being enslaved as a species is no way to act? I couldn't even quite finish it because in some ways you'd think they would be the most empathetic of species. Mm-hmm. Because they are able to see all these different eventualities in time that they would... I guess you might think one would apply by analogy to being able to take the perspective of many different individuals, but I guess that's really quite different. Yeah. It's one of those situations where if you know something's going to happen, there's nothing you can do about it. You're just going to act the way you always were going to act anyway. Mm-hmm. I thought that the way the ability worked, they have to individually, the ferals have to concentrate on something specific. Where is this vessel going? What am I going to do next? They're not just omniscient. No, but they can see all manners of probabilities and they can choose a path deliberately. But they have to choose what to look at, right? Yeah. I think what may have happened is the Tharls at one point having enslaved humans got to a point where all of the probabilities that they could foresee ended in them being enslaved Mm. because there was just no way that this wasn't going to happen. So they decided to go ahead and accept it. It happened. They suffered for however long they've suffered for only with the hope that it eventually was going to end, which sure enough it does, but only because the doctor and Romana and canine and Adric happen along when they do. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm not getting that. I, it well, seems like only this one individual foresaw that the Doctor and Romana and the TARDIS would create the circumstance under which they could be freed. I guess, I guess I'm not seeing where the, uh, the, 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 the Therals foresaw that. as a species that they were going to be enslaved and oh, going to well, be freed. Oh, well, that's just it. I don't think, well, I think I may have misspoke at some point, because if they're seeing these things individually, then at some point, wouldn't they, as a race be looking forward and saying, okay, are you seeing anything different? Because I'm not. Well, I like your idea, though, about the... them just having <laughs> never really thought about the possibility of, well, maybe killer robots will come through the mirror. <laughs> um, just, not that it was unforeseeable, but that it was a topic it would never occur to them to try to see, maybe. Right. Oh, that's a thought. Yeah, that being so comfortable as rulers of the galaxy essentially or the universe or however they put it that they became so complacent that they stopped looking and thus were completely unprepared that would be an alternate reading of it i'm of course cringing at the idea that stephen gallagher should ever listen to this and think no no that's not what i meant (laughs) with it at all it's like the rise and fall of rome 
Yeah, that if the Romans had foreseen that, would they have done anything different? I was going to say, I don't think Peter Gallagher wrote The Rise and Fall of Rome. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. Stephen Gallagher did not write The Rise and Fall of Rome. But, oh, dear Lord. <laughs> I'm not recalling any of the proper nouns of this at all, but I loved the story, well, loved and hated, because it felt so much like our own present reality, the story of the species that created this terrific technology, which they immediately used to go back and create, I'm trying to remember the story, go back and create the technology. I'm sorry, this was a week and a half ago, so I'm grasping here. It was a delight at the time. Maybe this was some of the new material. That may be something new. (laughs) Yeah, because it's not ringing a bell for me either. Mm -hmm. Okay, something about the, the species that created the warp drives? That is not ringing a bell. No, it's not the warp drives. It was something else. I'm so sorry. It's an audiobook, so I literally can't go look it up. That's fine. <laughs> That's uh, fine. Nor can I recount it well, because I assumed everyone will already know what I was talking about. Well, I'm sure somebody listening will probably know. Best to edit it out and pretend I it, it's prob- never lived. Nah. nah, I'm sure that somebody will come along and say, nope, that was in the audiobook. Mm-hmm. And that will be fine. It was terribly clever. I'm searching with PDF for all these words like invention and drive, and <laughs> I'm not finding it. Yeah, and it probably won't be there. I should have taken better notes to be able to describe it. That's okay. It was something like, and I'm, I am going to explain this wrong, internet commenter. So you already, I'm, I'm forfeiting in advance. It's something like they invented a, it was not a time travel device, but something along the lines of they invented a time travel device and the first thing they did was go back in time and steal their own technology to make money off of it it was one of those sort of comedic takes on modern vulture capitalism that definitely was not in the version that we read i would have remembered that (laughs) i probably would have quoted that completely in the notes if i had seen it yeah because that sounds amazing i wanted to point out something uh one of the little interviews i was or maybe it was the subtitles i was reading for this episode, you had mentioned the the names had the same vowel consonant combination. Rorvik and Sagan were actually named after American sci-fi authors. And I giggled. It was Sagan was named after Carl Sagan. I think what I was, I think it was something like they're all two syllables, consonant, vowel, consonant, vowel, consonant. Right. Uh, but I did notice the Sagan. I wondered if it was supposed to be our Sagan, if you will. Just... <laughs> A Sagan. That was the main reason why I wanted to bring it up was that was something I found amusing that um, it was in the commentary that it, it was named after Carl Sagan. Okay, was there anything else we wanted to say about what we liked or what we disliked? I like Romana's comment about uh, she thought briefly about making one of the privateers who found himself quite charming think that she was responding to his charms and then said that was for. Uh, Wet and improbable heroines in the kind of story she'd never enjoyed reading. <laughs> okay. Not, not, not in the print version? I don't think it's in the print oh, goodness. version. Mm-hmm. Nope. Yeah. See? This is what happens when I don't take written notes. <laughs> this is what happens when I don't do the sort of homework I should be doing for these. <laughs> I enjoyed how Canine, in his apparent demise, even still was able to provide prescient information and initially you know he looks and sounds like he's running around 
like Ophelia just spouting nonsense and come to find out, oh, wait, he's actually saying that this place is shrinking, that this is mm-hmm. going to become a, a black hole. It, it's all coming in on itself. You know, initially, it's just like, oh, he's degrading, poor thing, whatever, you know, put him down. Mm-hmm. But then <laughs> it's like, oh, wait, he, he is actually saying <laughs> something important that we should be paying attention to. Yeah. In fact, TV Tropes, in describing the story, refers to him as the Cassandra of the story that he can see what's going on and is telling everybody what's going on, but nobody's listening except for the doctor who finally figures it out. And it's like, Oh, he is saying something important. Yeah. I enjoyed him having kind of like one last moment of good, even though he goes to the mirror and ends up fine. But before we know that's Mm -hmm. a possibility, it seems like this is it. Do we feel like they got a good send off Roman and canine? We've had them for a while now. Never cared about canine, which is actually pretty good for me for a robot dog to not hate him, but just be perfectly fine with him. Right. I thought it was very obvious from early on in the story that this is what was going to happen, that canine and Romano were going to stay in East Base. Mm-hmm. But I thought the way it was done actually worked well. Okay. I, like I said, I thought it was satisfying that Romano is going to continue to have other adventures and a spinoff, if you will. As opposed to retire or uh, go back to Gallifrey to become a bureaucrat or something like that. I thought that that was well seated in the previous stories and that that, that was a good, satisfying way to, for her to, to exit. Mm. And what's interesting about that <laughs> is that Lala Ward did say what she liked about her departure is that it was so open-ended that it allowed for the character to come back, which the character does, though not in the original series and not in the new series, but in the Big Finish audios and in the new adventures, because in the new adventures, it's established that, as is said in the televised version, yes, she becomes the Time Lord of eSpace, and she does have a TARDIS that Canine knocked up for her. Not knocked together, not knocked up. And the British sense, not the American sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry about that. I knew I was in bad territory when I started that sentence. Yeah, you're um, in Illinois. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. And what ends up happening is they finally leave East Base and come back to Gallifrey, where Romana eventually becomes president of Gallifrey. And depending on the time stream that you go with, whichever form of canon you like, she either regenerates again and becomes a Romana who is trying desperately to win a time war against an enemy, not the Daleks in this case, to the point that she considers the Doctor an enemy. Mm. Or she becomes president of Gallifrey and leads Gallifrey in a time war against the Daleks, with the help of Leela, who happens to still be on Gallifrey, with two canines, which is just lovely, especially when you hear John Leeson voicing both of them. I would watch the hell out of a Leela and Romana story. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. The big finish audios with those two are amazing. Or listen to, yeah. Yeah. Louise Jameson and Lala Ward have amazing chemistry. Those two characters together are fantastic. Those audios are wonderful. Whether or not they actually translate into the canon for the show or not, there's no way for us to know because the characters never returned on screen. But still, she's 
it's still out there. Lala Ward's still doing audios. In fact, she's now doing audios with her ex-husband, Tom Baker, even though they have yet to actually be in a studio together in person, I believe that's the case because he's doing all of his recording remotely because of COVID, but he's always basically done his recording remotely. No, they haven't met in person in the studio, but the Doctor and Romana and K-9 are all together in the TARDIS again in audio, which is really quite lovely. So, yeah. I do know that a few things I don't like about this book are the fact that some of the more successful lines from the TV story are missing, such as Romana shouting at, uh, I, I want to call them Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, <laughs> shouting at them to answer the communicator when it goes off. Answer it! And Birok's line about the slaves. They're only people. I wonder if that is actually some more of the additional material in the audio book. Oh, that he put those lines back in. You say maybe they put in some put back in some of that humor you were talking about from the episode. I think they might have done. But that being said, it's a nice trade-off. When you get lines like, and this is something that Warvik says about the doctor, he says, Can you hear me, doctor? I've got a message for you. I hate you. Did you get that? Of everybody <laughs> yeah. I've ever met, you're my least favorite. Yeah. <laughs> Except for one problem. And this is something that Dalton and I noticed when we watched it the other night. In the book, there's no way that Rorvik could know the doctor's name because he never introduces himself. Mm-mm. Whereas on screen, you hear Tom Baker muttering an introduction, I'm the doctor, this is K9, before the robot starts talking again. All the gateways are one. All the gateways are one. You see, I'm so sorry. He's completely run down. I'm the doctor, by the way, and that's K9, and we just have... There are three physical gateways, and the three are one. But it's not on the printed page. So there's a uh, novelization-based plot hole. (laughs) Unless it's in the audio version. It might be back in the audio version. I don't think I was paying sharp enough attention to have caught something (laughs) like that. It's just so melodramatic, too. (laughs) (laughs) It is so wonderful, and possibly my favorite passage, one that in the notes I had just wow beside. Romana watched him go, knowing better than to do otherwise. Something she'd learned about the doctor was that he never took orders, and that he very rarely even took advice. When the logic of a situation seemed to be making loud demands for caution, it was by no means unusual for the doctor to take a leap into the dark if his intuition suggested that he should. Intuition, as he had often said, was to be valued far above logic, for logic could be designed into a machine by anybody with a basic knowledge of computer science, whilst intuition was solely the product of evolution. And, as he had often also been known to assert, the doctor had much greater respect for the architect of evolution than he had had for the designers of what he called Tinker Toy Electronic Brain. I adore that. So good. So, anything else you want to say about this book? I'll back up for just a moment. I got so excited about the ripple effect, and I missed part of my main point was with the free will and the randomness, um, then using the idea of the tossing of the coin. And then Allison said in the audio that he used the tossing of a badge. He loses the coin and he panics because he was using the coin to be able to navigate this 
space that didn't have any markers. And then he realized that it wasn't the coin itself. It was how he was using it. So he has some kind of badge or pin on his jacket that's some kind of award or something like that oh. from, from his home civilization. And he pulls that off and flips it in the air. Okay, so then I also went from there and back to my being Romana for California Psychics, being able to get a story or find a pattern or get get your uh, idea of future prediction through something like reading of runes, reading of bones, uh, reading of tarot cards. It's the the randomness that that people are, are then looking for their future. And I felt, think that kind of called back to some of the things that Barak was doing. There's a line that I'm not finding in the PDF here. So I'm looking for the word equation, but something like the the universe is too vast and sprawling an equation to solve. I don't remember a line like that, but that sounds in keeping with this book. Shall we go to Goodreads? Shimmy on over. Let's do it. Okay. As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with their own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.55. The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length. Actually, they haven't been edited at all because we didn't get any this time either for some reason. Sorry, everyone, but keep them coming. Or at least keep them coming back. when you them. <laughs> Start them coming. <laughs> Start them coming again, yes. Daniel Kukwa gives it five stars and says no chapters, an astonishingly vivid prologue. A pithy ship's computer. We didn't even mention the ship's computer making jokes throughout the whole thing. Oh, I meant to do that because the computer was fascinated with the coffee maker. Yeah, exactly. And some extra philosophy to spice up a story featuring a bitchy slaver crew, Cocteau-inspired aliens, an indestructible mirror, and a goodbye to a popular Doctor Who companion. This is how to write a Doctor Who novelization. The fourth Dr. Tom Baker novels are some of the most basic and threadbare adaptations until you get to his final season when the authors begin to finally stretch the boundaries of their stories in print. This one is a particularly fine example. Jack also gives it five stars and says, Having recently watched season 18 of Doctor Who for the first time, I would have ranked the story the lowest of that set, mainly because I hadn't understood it or followed the plot. I hoped that reading this novelization would clarify things, and I was certainly not disappointed. It's an interesting choice not to use any chapters, and I think I prefer having logical stopping places put in nicely for me, but I didn't notice it after a while, and it does make the story flow nicely without having to pace it to put cliffhangers at the end of each chapter or something. The companions are Romana, Adric, and K9. Although this is a very Romana-centric story, she really shines on this one, and you can see her becoming more independent and taking on the Doctor's role when he's elsewhere. I did like the scenes Adric was in, as he was given a lot more depth than I'd expected given his side character stays for a lot of the story. When watching the TV episodes, I noticed they were using lots of interesting effects, but couldn't for the life of me work out what they were supposed to be representing. The descriptions in the book are much clearer, and it's absolutely beautiful. It feels like the kind of concept could be a whole feature film today. There's so much scale and potential, and with modern-day special effects, perhaps the intended story would be clearer on screen. Overall, then, I definitely recommend this book to Doctor Who fans, particularly those who couldn't quite follow the plot of the TV version, but wish they could understand it. 
is the perfect book for that. I look forward to rewatching the TV serial with this newfound understanding and appreciation of the story. And finally, Jay-Z Thompson gives it two stars and simply says an odd read, an episode I'd not seen from an era of the show I'm not particularly fond of, so it was climbing up a steep hill in the first place. There's some interesting SF ideas there, but the flat prose and slow pace killed it for me. These are all children's books, but this one felt unsure of its audience in a way that other targets rarely did, and much of the intended humor fell flat without an actor to deliver the lines. This take on the show would go on to be very influential, but it's not for me. Well, obviously. Actually, I, I respect that review. I didn't expect to like it, and I didn't. Fair enough. I don't like <laughs> okay. this kind of thing in general, and this one in particular. Like, yeah, that's, that's acceptable. Okay. So, out of five stars, Jennifer, what did you give this? Probably a 3.9. Okay. Why so? I did find it to be hard to read overall. It, I, I found myself reading a page in the same thinking, what did I just read? And go back and reread it, and maybe read it again. I did find it a particularly hard read, but... It is also a favorite story, and it did shed some light into the areas that were not very clearly uh, illustrated in the aired episode. That's largely it. it was, I did find it to be a kind of a hard read, hard to keep track of, but overall I, I did like it, and it complemented the episode well. Okay, and Dalton? I would give this one a four. I enjoyed this book more after sitting with it for a little while. When I was reading it due to my COVID brain fog, it was a little difficult. But the, the more time I've had to sit with it and having watched the episode after the fact, it's quite a charming story. I think the prose is really well done. It's really evocative. And there's a lot of good character moments with the Doctor, with Romana, with K-9. Like I said earlier, Adric is kind of in the background a bit for me, but the other three are really strong for me. And I do feel like it was a, a pretty good send off for Romana and K9. K9 finally did win me over. <laughs> I was worried about him initially, but I, I came to enjoy him and uh, I'm glad to see that he's able to live on with Romana in eSpace. And you'll get to see him two more times though. Not mm. with Romana. But we'll get to those. <laughs> and Allison, out of five stars, what did you give this? I'm going to go 3.25, which for me is a rave. Mm -hmm. um, yes, it is. So uh, you know, as I look through this, I, said, I read some at the beginning and some in the middle. Dalton, I think it's not just you. Jennifer also you know, saying, read a page and said, what do I just read? I think I might have gotten the optimal possible experience. I think a lot of the writing here really is much better orally delivered mm -hmm. uh, via tablet or actor <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, in some ways in terms of the flow because there are lines I'm looking back here that I enjoyed in the book that I I mean in the audio version I'm looking at them they don't quite hit the same way when I'm reading them and that's because I haven't been reading this book and haven't really gotten into the the rhythm of it I'm a sucker for a murder in peril prologue and he started off with a good murderous and imperiling prologue. <laughs> well, it also showed us something clever right away and then gave us, uh, I thought overall, very nice send-off for Romana at the end and some very striking imagery 
in between. And I thought some very good visceral moments of sort of Borax's perspective. I can't say it correctly at all anymore. <laughs> well, of of panic, of despair, of triumph. And Jennifer, you might be the first person to overtly refer to, uh, actually start just sort of saying, it was not a beach read. but it was it was a good autumn read for this time of year it had some serious things some very silly things and some humor and it was different from the ones we've been reading from the season we've read so many repeated elements that we've seen before in previous stories and that's not a crime in and of itself but this one showed us some new things we had not seen before with this doctor in terms of story elements and themes Mm -hmm. And as for me, that's probably why I would give this, and I'm going to split hairs here, I'm going to give it a 4.75. I'm not going to go as high as a 5 because what I consider a 5 is David Whitaker. I consider James Goss a 5. There are certain other books that I think I've given a 5, but this one comes damn close to it. And the only reason that 0.25 is knocked off is because there are some of the good lines from the televised version that don't appear here, though it sounds like they may actually appear in the audio version. And there are a few things that are somehow pulled out of focus just a little bit on the printed page that are actually more focused on screen. But overall, Daniel Cook says this is the way to write a Doctor Who novelization, and I absolutely agree. This not only captures the story, which frankly can be a little confusing when you watch it the first time. Oh, but everyone but me has seen. <laughs> yes, well, <laughs> eventually we'll get you there. Eventually we'll have to get you there. You won't shut up about it. But yes, we'll eventually show it to you. It can be confusing that first time that you see it, but this book clarifies it and still maintains the mystery surrounding it. So. Yeah, this is one of the best Tom Baker novelizations we've read, and possibly one of the best novelizations we've read. So, 4.75. Well, thank you all. Mm -hmm. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we continue with Tom Baker's last season as we look at Terrence Dick's novelization of The Keeper of Tronca which is Tom Baker's penultimate story. Mm-hmm. And thank you, Jennifer Picker, for coming back with us on this one. Thanks for having me. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all one word with no spaces. Also feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC or subscribe to us via the podcast. Jesus Christ. <laughs> or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, just like my tongue appears to be failing me, email me directly at emperordalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye.
be all right. All right. <laughs> She'll be superb. Direction point. Direction point. A Doctor Who Podcast Network.